On this episode of the Tice Podcast, I chat to Mick Jenkins, CISO of Brunel University. Mick talks to us about how the five-year plan for improving the cybersecurity of the university has been affected by the COVID-19 crisis, and about how intellectual property is being targeted by advanced persistent threat actors. I'm Russell, head of content at Tice, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Mick. Welcome to the Tice Podcast. Could you quickly give us the background to your career path on the way to becoming CISO of Brunel University? Uh, hello, Russell, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me on today. And uh, yes, delighted to talk to you. Um, I, I guess, in a way, I had a fairly convoluted uh, roadmap to becoming a CISO. Um, but in short, I, I spent 28 years in the in the military, um, in the armed forces, and uh, much of that time was in the intelligence community, uh, as well as the bomb disposal community, where on both occasions I was often working in compartmented uh, intelligence operations. So kind of very much used to information security, uh, high-grade information and classifications. Um, and then sort of, uh, I was teased out of the military by uh, my mentor, who's now 79, 80 years of age. Um, and he always likes to look after my career. So he kind of steers me in the right path. And he suggested that I should work for an ultra-secure data center to set up capability in security, infosec, business resilience, uh, and the rest of it. Um, and then spent a bit of time with London 2012, three and a half years, uh, looking after the Olympic Park security as well as data centers. Uh, and resilience. Uh, that was a wonderful uh, period of life. Um, and then sort of came into academia, uh, pretty much after military and private sector appointments. And I have to say, you know, wonderful people in, in academia, but the, the big challenge for me was coming in and effectively building cybersecurity and privacy capability from a low level of maturity up to where we are now, which is on our way uh, towards a much higher level as we're three years into a five-year cybersecurity strategy. So that's a very brief analysis of where I came from. Uh, and it's thoroughly enjoyable uh, in terms of capability development. That's what I love, blank piece of paper, chat with the executive board, how does it fit the, the business risk and your business model, uh, and then go away and build it. And how has the five-year plan been affected by the COVID-19 crisis of the past couple of months? Well, I think it's really important that all businesses look uh, very carefully at their strategies they had in place, because, of course, when the business model changes, as it's done dramatically for, for sectors across the globe, um, you've got to go back to your strategies and you have to adjust those goals and objectives to suit whatever the new business models are. Um, and certainly, um, for me, it was quite crucial to do a quick recheck. I think that was about two weeks into the COVID business continuity when I had a quick look at uh, the objectives we still uh, had set ourselves and we needed to adapt a couple uh, because of the changing nature of the future for academia and our university and research and, and the rest of it. Uh, and actually, one of the pleasing things that came out of this was checking that our uh, strategy and thought leadership was still correct because all of our thinking was based upon um, bringing in uh, very good, high-end, credible uh, strategic partners. I was very keen to bring in only a couple, two or three, 
uh, strategic partners who act as my critical friends. Uh, and you just can't do this kind of stuff over five years without that, that kind of backup, high-end uh, industry partners. Um, and certainly with Exabeam and Cisco, um, it provided me with exactly what I was after to, um, to, to forge our way down the roadmap. What I was pleased about when I looked at the strategy is that it doesn't matter whether we're in the cloud, on premises, working at home, uh, or working on sites for the community, our thought leadership and the way that we wanted to build a unified cybersecurity platform, it works for all of those models, but it needs a bit of tweaking. Um, so I think it's a really interesting question about actually how much should businesses adjust uh, their strategies. And, you know, I'm three years into a five-year strategy. We're kind of optimising now. Um, and I'm pleased to say there are only little tweaks going on now because really... The, the challenge for me is moving towards zero trust environments and having great visibility uh, across the digital environment of all the threats that are coming in uh, or could come into to our environments using Exabeam, Seam and uh, Cisco instrumentation. Let's talk more about threats. I'd wanted to talk about APTs who are targeting health or research organisations at this time. How do we know this is happening? Well, I think, you, you know, it's a, again, it's a fascinating topic. and I could talk for a long time on this, but um, espionage has been going on for decades and hundreds of years, of course. Um, and it's no different in the, the time that we're in now. Um, corporate espionage is a tool that is used uh, to gain an advantage competitively in industry and commerce. Uh, and, of course, in nation states, sort of capabilities, espionage uh, is a very key tool for many, many nations to gain an advantage and a competitive edge, a political, geopolitical edge. Um, and none of this is new, of course, Russell. It's, it's, uh, it's been there for decades. So, uh, you know, adversaries who are intent on stealing your intellectual property uh, has been going on for a long, long time. And I, I guess during this period of COVID, um, then, yeah, uh, nation states are going to use all of the different tools to seek an advantage, and whether that's through cyber espionage or through old-fashioned use of human intelligence and paying sources or using other mechanisms to infiltrate into organisations and, in a sense, harvest data, um, that is no different to what I've seen for decades of being in my careers to what's happening now. But, of course, Interestingly, the stakes are high for governments at this moment in time. Uh, and, you know, public health authorities and anybody working on vaccines, uh, I'm sure have been uh, sort of encouraged to make sure that their cyber defence uh, and, you know, not just cyber defence, but actual training and awareness around the threat of espionage using different methods. You know, they, they target individuals, for example. Uh, as much as the collective uh, nature of the data, because if you can use an individual as an insider to get inside your digital environment and surreptitiously harvest data, that's as easy as it is for some of the social engineering techniques that we see uh, in, in the current time. For healthcare and research organisations who might be the targets of APTs at the moment, isn't this just par for the course? Hasn't intellectual property always been the target of sophisticated cyber espionage? 
Absolutely right. Um, intellectual property is valuable information, as you know, and uh, that, that cuts across all elements of uh, industry and commerce where, you know, it could be the avionics engineer, uh, engineering sort of side of life or high-end uh, sort of manufacturing where clearly anybody who is developing as a researcher and quite often in partnership with private sector and different industries um, they need to protect that intellectual property because ultimately if it's lost and another state reverse engineers that technology and they put it on the market into uh, you know other parts of the globe at half the price then the people who pay are the nation because we're losing at the national end uh, high-end intellectual property that has an effect on our economy and uh, gross domestic product and the rest of it. So most nations across the world take any elements of intellectual property and research, uh, you know, very seriously, as we've seen, and we've seen plenty of examples uh, in Western nations of how espionage has manifested itself uh, and all of a sudden data has, has been lost. And I think Interestingly for me, over the course of the last sort of year or two years, it's very much been recognised that uh, academia and research is part of our critical national infrastructure um, because it brings big dividends uh, into the nation. You talked about cyber awareness and social engineering. What's the approach at Brunel University with regards to training, particularly in the current climate? Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a, another great question. So for me, it's about caring. And part of my job is to get amongst the community. And we have a great community, uh, very lively, single campus. We've got plenty of uh, amazing students, incredible academics, lots of professional staff, contractors, clients. Uh, and ultimately, we're a community. We're a town, you know, we're the size of a town, but we're a community. And the crux to all of this is getting the community to recognize crime and understand crime uh, because cybercrime is cyber criminals, is a criminal activity. Uh, and ultimately the targets are the data that we create, whether it's personal data or intellectual uh, data, intellectual property. And we need to know, the community needs to know there are bad people out there who want to get hold of that data and steal it. Uh, as well as obviously disruption and denial of service attacks. So what we've tried to do is not bring into the community a kind of um, uh, an enforcement, a police enforcement kind of regime. We, we do it completely differently. We want to find out how researchers work, uh, what kind of uh, information and uh, what kind of work they're doing that we can help them with. But we want people to care about protecting data. So we spend a lot of time um, with enduring communications campaigns to, you know, just filter it out into the community that this is everybody's responsibility to protect our data. And certainly students, um, they have a high expectation that we will do exactly that. Um, but they, they certainly don't like um, privacy breaches of their own personal data. So I think they're quite pleased that they see that there's a strong emphasis on data protection, privacy, cyber security, uh, and we welcome a lot into our security centre and any kind of problems they've had with issues such as cyber-enabled fraud, which they're targets of on a daily basis, for example. So yeah, it's all about getting people to care, I think, Russell. 
I know a lot of CISOs are concerned about losing that informal cyber risk communication. How has this been affected by everyone working remotely at the university rather than having an office on campus to visit you? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, um, I think every different individual has a different opinion. And some people have thoroughly enjoyed remote working, working from home. Uh, many have missed the compatriotism, the friendship, the office banter, the, the, the fun of being amongst, you know, uh, people uh, working towards their, their own common goals. Uh, and certainly for us as a community, it's a big loss not to be on the campus. But I think the adaptability of people that I've seen in, in the university over the course of the last couple of months has been fabulous. Um, and certainly the agile nature of the way that, for example, our IT community have worked incredibly long hours to make sure that we put out the, the services that the customers, the staff, the students all needed, including you know, online training, online webinars, conferences. Um, and to see that all happen very quickly, I think has given everybody a lesson that things can be achieved uh, you know, with great teamwork, for example. But for me, as a CISO, this was a risky time, of course, putting the workforce into the home. Uh, and it was really crucial that we had visibility uh, of everything that was happening, because basically um, what was known as our sort of normal operations uh, and identifying anomalous threat activity in our digital environment and networks completely changed. Um, and so the cyber analysts have really enjoyed um, looking at the analysis of what activity is going on uh, out there from home. Uh, and I've got one particularly young apprentice who's uh, an analyst as well, and he's thoroughly enjoyed that particular emphasis of work because he's seeing something he's never seen before. None of us had. Um, and certainly without the instrumentation and uh, the Exabeam platform that has given us visibility of, you know, what exactly our individuals and their devices doing, has given us sight and an overview, a bird's eye view of what the activity is, what's normal, what's abnormal, uh, and, you know, effectively, where is the anom anomalous behaviour that we can begin to investigate using our next generation tooling? Uh, and that's been fascinating for us, a completely different dimension. And finally, going back to intellectual property, for InfoSec professionals who don't necessarily deal with sensitive IP, what should they be aware of at the moment and what should they be doing? Yeah, and I think it just comes back to, to um, education, awareness and caring about our data. Uh, it, it, it's really interesting because I think part of our big role is communications and messaging that many people might not be aware <coughs> that their data is the target. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, for example, of nation states or organised crime, uh, and if they aren't aware of the activity that goes on in those, you know, that sort of nefarious world, they wouldn't even think twice that actually somebody wants to get in and steal my intellectual property. I mean, academia has generally uh, historically been about creating data that we share and is open. Um, and I think the key to that uh, with me and my team is that we go out and meet people, we shake their hands, we talk to them, or we used to shake hands, we don't do that of course these days. 
Um, and we try and find out exactly what they're working on. And some of their research is staggering. It's fascinating. We, we enjoy listening to them. And we take an active interest. And then we begin to explain to them, oh, are you aware that this happened two months ago uh, when this kind of data was stolen and there was a cyber uh, attack on this institution? And generally, it opens their eyes up that, to something that they weren't really aware of that happened in the criminal fraternity. And particularly when we tell them about the tactics to get to the data, they love that because all of a sudden they're really engaged because there's a lot of technical aspects to how the cybercrime uh, operator works, as well as the simple social engineering and phishing. Um, and, and I think just by talking with people, you raise their awareness and therefore they raise their guard as well. And then before you know it, you've got the peer uh, sort of pressure and stuff happening where people will report things to us that they never would have reported in the past. And we love that because it means that people are beginning to understand, you know, what our role is and that actually everybody in the community has a role to help us defend uh, against the adversary. Fantastic. Thank you for your time today, Mick. Thank you very much. Nice chatting. Our thanks to Mick for joining us and sharing his thoughts. As ever, you'll find many more podcasts and video interviews on www.tice.co.uk and we hope that you join us here again soon.